Good afternoon, Kirksville. You are listening to the greatest political radio show this side of the Mississippi, across the aisle on 88.7 KTRM Kirksville. We have an excellent show planned for you today, talking about what's been going on in Ukraine, the Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmation hearings, and the bifurcation of the economy. My name is Jordan Carlson, and I am representing the College Democrats. My name is Kyle Farrell, and I'm representing the College Republicans. My name's Adam Bishop, and I'm also representing the College Republicans. All right, so yesterday, some excitement on campus had a bit of a debate over abortion. Kyle, you're going to take us into this one. Yeah, so last night, yesterday evening, College Republicans and College Democrats, they went at it. We went at it. I was one of the panelists. Um, there were three from each side, and we were discussing uh, the prompt uh, abortion should be illegal, barring no lethal threat to the mother. So obviously college Republicans were arguing for that and college Democrats against. And uh, it was a great event. There were probably upwards of 60, 65 people in, uh, in a crowded room, standing space only. We had to bring in extra chairs. Um, and it was a great event. I think some people came expecting it to be almost a, a bar fight or to things get uncivil for people to be yelling at each other. But that didn't happen. I'm um, sure things got a little heated at some points, um, but I mean that will happen in any debate, especially about something as contentious as abortion. But uh, something that I think is the real significance of the event is that we we were showing everyone that you can have civil discussions over really contentious, controversial things like this, and, and things won't get out of hand. And you can also be really committed and staunch in your opinions and still talk about it. Some people talk about polarization like, like it's the end of the world. And I think it is the end of the world when you, when you lose all respect for the other side and you don't view them as having any human dignity. But you can still be really strong in your political views, but still think that the other side is worth hearing out and worth talking about. I mean, that's what we do on Across the Aisle. Jordan and I disagree on a lot of things, but I still give him the time of day to listen to what he has to say. And so uh, the event for me, at least, my big takeaway, and I want to hear your guys' big takeaways, is that students... It showed that students can feel comfortable sharing their, their thoughts on an issue that is, is super fraught, and it, it can rile people up easily, but we need to feel comfortable uh, sharing our thoughts and kind of uh, facilitating that arena of ideas, especially at a college institution, where you are supposed to be critically thinking and, and understanding the world, and sometimes you have bad ideas, but it takes a good idea to be shared in that arena to then show you that you have a bad idea. And so, like, that, that was kind of my big takeaway. I think it, it showed support for free speech on campus. I think something that was important to take away is the interaction that it had on campus, even if it wasn't necessarily all positive interaction, at least in terms of uh, the response to what some of the Republicans were saying. If nothing else, it was interaction, and it got people talking about the issue, and it got people looking into it. And I have to imagine that at least some of the people that were getting involved are people that at least learned something or took something away with it, got more involved through the means of this discussion, whereas had there not been this discussion, they simply wouldn't have been involved. And that's something that's really important. Obviously, as we've talked about on the show several times before, abortion is something that realistically, I can stand up here and talk about it for 20 minutes. I will never make a dent in what Kyle thinks about it. And Kyle could do the exact same thing. And I tell you what, he's not going to change my mind. But it's something that's going to get people talking. So if you have this discussion again on something like gun rights, if you have this discussion again on something like environmental policy, maybe you will be able to change someone's mind. Maybe you will be able to do something about the way that they think. But at the end of the day, as long as you have that interaction, as long as you're having that discussion, you're doing something positive for the community around you. And that's something that needs to happen more, especially on campus. And I'm hoping that is something that can continue to happen because it is important. It's important for the fabric of this community. It's important to make people smarter, too, at the end of the day. So, Adam, what were you thinking on it? I mean, generally it was just very entertaining. So, I mean, you know, all the, the, the sentimental stuff about, you know, just trying to have a good conversation is good and all. But even if it's just a fun time, you know, I mm -hmm. think that's, that's worthy enough to have it. But, you know, it's very true, the points that you're making, you know, even if these people came here, you know, expecting a bar fight or that sort of thing, at least they're coming here and they're at least hearing different sides of, of the aisle. They're, they're not just sitting um, in their bubbles, because I think that's a real issue on both sides, is that you know we're so set in our ways that we don't even consider, well, maybe I should look from the other perspective. Maybe I should hear other things. And you know, even if they were set in their ways, at least they came to the, the event. At least this event was held in the first place, and I think that's something that should be continued 
like you said, across all the different types of issues on this campus. Yeah, and I do want to note that I think the student body here at Truman is is thirsty for these kind of conversations. They want to be there because we only started advertising it on Wednesday of this week, and we had standing room only in the classroom for the debate. Um, so I think that really speaks to to the fact that Truman students are interested in, in these dialogues. They want to hear these good faith engagements and discussions. Uh, they, they want to hear how people deal with issues like this. They don't just want them uh, put under the put under the bed or ignored or, or people just dividing into their tribalistic camps. They do want to see that there is some kind of across the aisle discussions. And um, so, so that was also really, really encouraging to me to see. I think something that's important to take away as well is it's important to dispel narratives that might be pushed that aren't necessarily true. And abortion's a difficult one with that because of how polarized the two different views are. If you're pro-life, you have very, very different views than someone who is pro-choice. But I'm thinking of an issue like critical race theory where the idea that gets represented by one party is entirely different than the reality that the other party understands. You can sit there and think that critical race theory is something that is exceptionally divisive. It wants to teach kids that you know, America was founded on racist beliefs and that uh, inherently everyone is racist. And then you could talk to someone who firmly believes in critical race theory and they'll tell you that's not what it's about. But if you only listen to one side, you're going to have that belief that exclusively what you're hearing is correct. And by having this open dialogue, you at least to some extent have the ability to dispel a narrative that's not actually being pushed. Like I said earlier, abortion's a difficult one to have because of how well-known the abortion debate is. And people stick to the party lines because the party lines is ultimately what people think. They're, it's an issue that is not overly complicated to have at a big picture. Obviously, there's there's these fine details in which you can get mixed in, and those get some somewhat confusing. I know Plan B is always something that gets brought up that is pretty confusing to handle, especially if you're not someone who's familiar with it. But for other issues, it's important to continue having these debates to allow people to be more educated on what's going on. If you're not educated on it, you're going to continue to be stuck in your ways and you're going to sit there and go, oh yeah, well they're wrong because of this. But in reality, the other side doesn't think that at all. So I think if we can continue to have these debates, it's something that is going to improve the culture on campus. Because like Kyle said, people really like this stuff. It's really exciting. Even if you're just excited because you can yell at the other side, it's important to engage in that discussion. So I'm really glad it happened. I really, really hope that it is something that can continue to happen going forward in the future. I think it's very important. Yeah, I think, I think that's great. I think we can move on to what's going on outside the borders of Kirksville. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole lot of things going on outside of Kirksville. One of those is notably the Russian invasion of Ukraine, very far from Kirksville. Yes. Uh, but there's been some updates on what's been going on there, particularly that Russia has kind of failed in their initial goal. Right? Senior U.S. officials were, were seeing you know, that the, the Kremlin was planning on going in and seizing Kiev um, in a very, very short period of time, installing a pro-Russian regime uh, very, very quickly, but none of that has happened. Uh, you know, it's been over three weeks, if I'm correct, since the invasion of Ukraine. And really, Russia has pretty much stalled um, since where they advanced just about within the first week of the invasion. Uh, they haven't really gotten much farther past that. And even now, we're seeing Ukraine even push back in some places, uh, which is really not what we expected at all. And so what we're kind of seeing is that there's a, a, a new sort of plan coming from Russia in that Putin almost wants... Uh, Ukraine to just accept it, accept that they've lost the territories and they're going to move into some sort of quote-unquote peace. Um, you know, what that peace would necessarily entail is unsure, uh, but we can kind of expect that even if this was agreed to, Putin would still be uh, issuing some sort of harassment against Ukraine uh, in some sort of fashion. Uh, but I do think it is very, very notable that, you know, Russia has stalled. Um, and I think that's, that's the big uh, picture here, the big, you know, event that's happened is that Russia is not advancing um, that's very notable. Um, I'll open it up to your guys' thoughts, but if you don't have anything you'd want to say uh, right out the bat, you know, I have something that I want to say. Uh, Adam, go yeah, ahead. Go for it. I told you so. I was <laughs> yeah. here a few weeks ago, and you said that Ukraine would not last a week, and here we are three weeks later, and Ukraine is really holding its own. Um, really what I said last time, you know, don't underestimate the Ukrainian people. They're fighting for their homeland. They know the land better than the Russians. Uh, they might be more equipped than we think, and all of that has really come to pass, and now we're seeing the Ukrainians really start to hold their own. So Yeah, I, I will be the first to say, yeah, I definitely underestimated the Ukrainian people and overestimated Putin. And now, um, as some analysts have stated, 
Russia Russia's not uh, a global superpower. It's not even really a competitor. It just has nuclear weapons and it's attached to a gas station. Um, they have lots of oil and they happen to have nukes, and and that does make them threatening. But they are not. Uh, they're they're not like the likes of China. Um, and so that should be, yeah, that, I, I should have kept in mind, I shouldn't have been so trusting of U.S. government officials. What was I thinking? I'm a conservative. <laughs> I'm not supposed to put that much faith in the government. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been incredible to, to see, uh, Ukraine's government because I was watching the CNN live updates thinking, okay, Putin keep moves, keeps moving in. He's taking more ground. Oh, he's going from the East. He has them surrounded. And then I kept watching the updates and it's like, oh, Putin's not moving forward anymore. The next day he's still not moving forward. Okay. And so, yeah, it seems that they're kind of in a, a deadlock, a stalemate, which I think is probably the best situation that Zelensky could have hoped for, but I still fear that what kind of ramifications this ha could have for Putin, because he is completely embarrassed on the national stage right now, that uh, uh, what he perceives himself to be a global superpower like Russia couldn't take out this little dinky country of Ukraine that's right next to him. And um, like the, the military index of Russia is probably three, four times that of Ukraine, and he still couldn't take it. And so when you have someone who is kind of already like a mad dog, and you corner him with all these sanctions, and you just make his situation worse and worse... It makes me it makes me worry that he will resort to more more desperate means to accomplish his goals like chemical warfare, maybe a, a nuclear weapon. I mean, he he has threatened it. He has put his nuclear forces on higher alert. So I think it's it's good that Ukraine has lasted this long, but I think it it's it's potentially not good that we haven't quite talked about an off ramp for Putin, and that I like I don't want to make concessions to Putin, but. I think the worst thing would be for him to continue pummeling the Ukraine people for like two years if it's just going to be a stalemate and there's no kind of real counterattack from the Ukrainians to push them, to push Russians out of their country. Because they might have the ability to, to keep them from coming forward, but can they take them out of the country? Which is what I'm worried about, that it could just be a continually bombardment of all the major Ukrainian cities. And I do think what you brought up earlier about a stalemate being the best case for Zelensky is, is absolutely true. If you are sitting there as a Ukrainian, you're like, well, they're not gaining ground, so they are effectively losing. It's something like, mm -hmm. if you're not winning, you are losing in this case, especially if you were this Russian superpower that was supposed to be pretty much an unstoppable military force. Then we start getting into it, and you start to realize, well, maybe they are stoppable. And then you get further into this conflict, and you're going, oh, not only is it a maybe they are stoppable, it is they are stoppable, and it's going to continue to apparently, unless something drastic happens, looks like Ukraine's going to be able to hold out, at least for the time being. If Russia's able to turn the tide, you have to think it's going to be doing something drastic, which would thus further spiral the international community down this rabbit hole that is already having some very interesting side effects, one of which is being uh, Putin has officially been declared a war criminal by the United States, which was something that he did not take too kindly of it first at, at accusations in which people were saying, yeah, Putin, I think you are a war criminal. Biden was one to come out and say, yeah, I, as far as I'm concerned, he is a war criminal. And that was before the official investigation had wrapped. But um, now the investigation has wrapped and it, it was found that Biden has, or uh, I'm sorry, Putin has been committing war crimes, which is something that doesn't really bode well for Putin if you're sitting there and you're now effectively pissing off your oligarchs but you're also committing war crimes. You don't have a lot of people in your corner at this point. So it's going to be interesting to watch and see what happens going forward because at this point, it's estimated that some of the Russian oligarchs, the, the some 400 of them that Putin is pretty much being held in power by, have some of which have lost their wealth up to two-thirds of what it was before, the, before this conflict started. So if you continue to see this conflict and those oligarchs continue to lose their wealth, by, uh, Putin, again, is not going to have a base, which is going to be very, very detrimental to his war effort if it's not succeeding. So who knows what's going to continue to happen here. If Putin continues to not see success, it already makes it unpopular, at least amongst the soldiers that are fighting. But then we already saw weeks ago, the citizens aren't very happy with this conflict at all. So you were at that point relying upon your oligarchs. And if the oligarchs aren't happy, the military's not happy, and the civilians aren't happy, you don't really have a base to continue to fight an unpopular war. So who knows how much longer this is going to get dragged out. Maybe there's some effective Russian propaganda campaign going on that's convincing people otherwise within Russia that this is a success. But 
at least from the international community outside of Russia, things aren't looking very good for Putin. So, Adam, do you have anything else on this? Yeah, I was thinking, I think this is really one of the better outcomes that could have happened, because Russia isn't necessarily backed into a corner so much right now, right? If the Ukrainians had either, you know, completely wiped, you know, Russia out of Ukraine, or if we had sent, you know, NATO troops in, then we would have really seen Putin at his most dangerous, because then he has no other options. And like you said, he is still the guy with the nukes in the gas station, and that's really what makes him powerful. And so I'm not saying that we should necessarily appease Russia, of course, but we also don't want to give them an excuse to use the, the weapons of mass destruction that they do have. So it is important to consider, you know, just how much pressure we are putting on the, the, the Russian people themselves, too. Um, because, you know, I think that's really one of the reasons why Russia has stalled. Like I said last time, the, the spirit of the Russian people is not behind this war. You know, even if there is, you know, massive propaganda efforts going on in Russia, you know, we've seen countless times in Ukraine, you know, Russian soldiers just laying down their, their weapons and just uh, becoming prisoners or, uh, to the Ukrainian people because they just do not want to fight this war and they know that they're not equipped to fight this war. Uh, so we had, do have to be very, very careful with how much pressure we are putting on Putin, especially as he is stalling now um, to try to push him back too much too quickly. Uh, by all means, we should not allow Russia to, to remain in Ukraine, uh, but to try to kick him out, you know, very, very rapidly might, again, back him into that corner, that, that cornered animal, and he might use, you know, the nuclear weapons he has at his disposal. Yeah, it's a very fine line of how how much can you or should you retaliate? Like, I, I, I don't know, I'm a little questionable about Biden publicly calling Putin a war criminal. Like, does that bring Putin to the negotiating table? Does that make him more likely to, to find, to have a peace treaty in this instance? I don't really think so. Is he a war criminal? Obviously he is. But do you say that when you're trying to not to you're trying to prevent further destruction and war? I don't know if you do. Um, and so yeah, it's it's difficult because obviously Putin is the worst guy on the planet right now, and and you want to counteract him and you don't want to allow him to think that this is okay or that he can do it again in the future. But again, how much like what what's what's the line of how much we can do before Putin? does grow as desperate as he can, thinks, okay, you guys have forced me to do this because of all your actions, so I have to resort to these actions. I mean, the guy's like 70 years old. He's not going to be president that much longer. I think this is like his last big hurrah, and I, I think he might, he, might, he, might, he might go all out um, to protect it. But there were recent developments uh, with Biden visiting Poland and a lot of other NATO countries with kind of trying to bolster, bolster that alliance. And so he said in his speech over in Europe, he's in Europe right now, America's ability to meet its role in other parts of the world rests upon a united Europe and a secure Europe. We have learned from sad experiences in two world wars when we stayed out and not been involved in the stability of Europe, it always comes back to haunt the United States. We take Article 5 of the NATO Treaty as a sacred commitment, not a throwaway, a sacred commitment that relates to every member of NATO. Absolutely, completely, thoroughly united. And so I think... I think this is good. I think it's good to show the strength of NATO, um, but I do think it might be coming a little a little late. Like just now, Biden is is making agreements with with Europe that we will provide natural oil and gas to them, so they don't have to be reliant on Russia. And it seems like my my main critique of the Biden administration is that they they have been doing a lot of the right things, but it's like two weeks late, or like deterrence didn't fail. If if we had real deterrence in place that showed Putin, do not invade Ukraine, or the worst thing will happen to you. Like, I think Trump, Trump told Putin, if you invade Ukraine, I'll nuke Moscow. <laughs> and with, with Trump, you're like, I have no idea what that guy's going to do. He is a madman. I guess I'll wait. <laughs> but, but with the Biden administration, I don't think that was, I don't think that same kind of fear was there. And so when deterrence fails initially, you have a lot of bad options to deal with later. And again, the Biden administration has been pursuing a lot of the right options. I think they still made some mistakes, but they've making making a lot of the right decisions, but they do it so slow and they're like always on the back foot. They're always being reactive, which which I think is is the one weakness that they've had. But it is good that Biden is trying to bolster NATO in Europe. I think that is a big issue with like the deterrence side of things because for all intents and purposes, you know, Putin knew that he could invade Ukraine. There really wasn't that much stopping him. He might have overestimated the, the power of his military, but like you said, you know, we, we are still dependent on Russian oil, right? It, we did not cut that off, you know, even as we, as we saw the warning signs, you know, months in advance, you know, we had, oh, Russia's preparing troops in the Ukrainian border, oh, they're, they're not going to invade, they're not going to do anything, we don't have to take any action now. 
And it turns out we should have taken action then. We should have cut off you know, our dependence on oil. We should have encouraged Europe to, to cut their ties with Russia maybe a little bit sooner to you know, prevent this whole thing from happening. Of course, you know, hindsight is 2020, so we don't really know what would have happened had we done all these things. But I do think it is, you know, like you said, important to know we should have done a lot of these things much sooner. Yeah, I mean, I keep offering my takes, but frankly, I have been wrong on just about every single aspect of this so far. I was so firm in the fact that he wouldn't, that Putin would not invade in the first place, and that this war would be an absolute, uh, just a wash for Ukraine, and they would they'd be absolutely ran through. But uh, neither of those two things have happened. I will be curious, because at this point, I look at the option of tactical nukes, which is a, a, a a nuclear explosion that would not be as devastating as, as what you would traditionally think with a nuclear explosion. I think there's absolutely no way that Putin would use it, but me thinking that there is no way he would use a tactical nuke seems to confirm the fact that he's probably going to use a tactical nuke. So I pose that question to you all. I'll throw it over to Kyle first. Do you think there is a possibility that nuclear devices get involved in this kind of conflict? I think Putin would use chemical weapons before nuclear weapons. Oh, that'd be interesting. Um, because, I mean, he already... I mean, with, with Syria, there's already plenty of destruction that his army rested there. So, if he uses chemical weapons, then I'll answer your question again. But I think, I think he will use chemical weapons um, in the future. And you can, as we saw in Syria, you can at least for some period of time, effectively deny the use of chemical weapons. You can say, no, no, I, I didn't use chemical weapons. I have no idea what you're talking about. And eventually, likely, an international group's going to go in there and say, no, you most definitely did. But at least for a short period of time, you can use a chemical weapon and kill... I, I mean, there is already confirmed over a 1,000 civilians that have been killed in this conflict. The number that is realistic is probably somewhere in the two to 3,000 range, with one, over 1,000 having already been confirmed. It is clear that Putin is okay with killing civilians, even though he continues to come out and say, no, no, we're not killing civilians. The thing that cracked me up was on state news, they were like, we are absolutely not targeting, and then rattled off lists of things that they have been targeting. Schools, hospitals, residential buildings, uh, emergency escape routes. They're like, no, we're not attacking any of that. They have clearly attacked all of that in Maripol. So, I would be almost shocked if if there is some sort of unorthodox weapon that gets used. I think chemical weapons is one that absolutely would. That's a great point to bring up. I hadn't even considered that. So that will be something that will be very interesting to watch. Uh, Adam, over to you. Maybe not nuclear weapons now, but uh, any sort of unorthodox weapons that you had in mind or you were thinking about. I did want to address like the nuclear weapon issue because as things stand now, I think there's very little possibility that he would. Right, like I said earlier, he's not 100% backed into a corner. You know, maybe if he had been, you know, pushed back and horribly humiliated um, to a much greater extent, I think that possibility would be higher. But I think if he ever did use nuclear weapons, it would not be against Ukraine. He would target, you know, uh, his, you know, list of, you know, uh, uh, hostile countries, and would put together that whole list of people who have sanctioned him or whatever. You know, that would be the very last-ditch effort. That would be if he knew that there was no way that he was going to come back from this, and this is basically the end of his reign as, uh, quote-unquote, president of Russia. You know, that would be the very last-ditch effort to, to nuke possibly us, possibly, you know, locations in Europe. He would not nuke Ukraine um, because, really, there's not much point in it, I don't think. Um, really, what, what would he gain from nuking Ukraine? Um, that he, if, if you use nuclear weapons, that is your last-ditch effort. You know you're going to get nuked back. That's essentially the promise that we've made for, for decades. And so if he used them on Ukraine, he wouldn't have much gain in it, but he might want to settle some pre-existing grudges with other European countries or possibly those. Well, I, I think I will disagree with you there, that if he is going to use nuclear weapons, I, think, I don't think his first targets would be outside of Ukraine. I think it would be uh, specific targets in Ukraine because it's still unclear of what the West would do if Putin decided to nuke Ukraine. Um, I mean, there's been lots of vague comments of um, Biden at some point did say that uh, we would respond in kind, which would that would be nuclear war. Um, but uh, like would would NATO put put boots on the ground Would the U.N. put together a security force? We don't know the specifics of how the rest of the international community would respond if there was a nuclear weapon detonated in Ukraine. Now, if the U.S. was nuked, 
we would wipe Russia off the face of the map. Um, and I think Putin knows that. And so I think that there are more risks attached um, to bombing the rest of the world versus Ukraine. Um, now, as like a last, last, last-ditch effort of, well, might as well take out the whole world. Um, he could nuke the rest of the world, uh, but that would that would be certain annihilation for Russia. And right now, if he only nukes Ukraine, I don't think that certainty is there. Now, one theory that I had heard, I, and this is literally just from someone that I work with, was they were like, what if Putin's dying? Like, what if this is all Putin is dying? And he's like, I'm going out on top. It's Russia or nothing, baby. Let's roll the dice. I, maybe at that point, nuclear weapons get involved and uh, Russia gets turned into its own constant because we send it into an ocean, which would be... Which, which would, it certainly be something. That is kind of what I was thinking when I was talking about his use of nukes. I mean, like you said, he is in his 70s now. You know, he's not going to be around for too much longer. Oh. You know, this would be the last-ditch effort. This would be his strike back. I don't think if he used nukes, it would not be to gain a tactical advantage. It would be just to cause harm because he knows that his, his cause is lost. Do we have anything else on this, or do we want to move think, on to the big story this week? I think we can move on to the big story this week. So, if you've been paying attention... Literally at all to national news this week, you know that Katanji Brown-Jackson has been in front of the Senate Judicial Committee uh, getting questioned in terms of her confirmation whether or not she has uh, a good enough track record as a judge to be appointed to the highest court in the land. So it was interesting, to say the least, because Katanji Brown-Jackson went into this hearing with the highest approval rating of any potential nominee since uh, John Roberts was being considered. And I think that was, she has a 58% approval rating with somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% undecided, and then the rest were against. Whereas John Roberts was 59% approval, uh, 10%, roughly 10% was undecided, and the rest were in disapproval. In this instance, it's a little interesting because of the makeup of the Senate right now. So all you need to get an appointment is a simple majority and Democrats already have 50 seats. So theoretically, everyone votes the way they're supposed to vote. doesn't really matter what Republicans think. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is going to be sitting on the Supreme Court. So rather than a lot of this being focused on getting Ketanji Brown-Jackson not appointed, a lot of attention was more so being paid to those senators who might have higher political aspirations going forward. Because quite a few of the questions that were being directed at Ketanji Brown-Jackson were not necessarily those that were of legal issue. Obviously, there was the big issue that was being brought up about her track record, and that was her ruling on child pornography cases. But a lot of other things were Marsha Blackburn asking, what is a woman? And Ketanji Brown-Jackson had the excellent response of, I, what? Like, that's, that's not what I deal with at all. And then, of course, she had a heated exchange with Lindsey Graham about something that was entirely obsolete to what she does. Uh, Ted Cruz was getting frustrated about like reading a, ch a child's book in front of the Senate, and uh, of course, Tom Brown Jackson was once again like, oh, "What are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense." So, a lot of this was theatrics. A lot of it was more so a response to the way Democrats had been handling Amy Coney Barrett. So, it's been interesting. A lot of theatrics were involved. At the end of the day it's probably not going to matter. The reason being, Joe Manchin has already voiced his support. There were two senators that were up in the air, that being Cinema uh, and that being Manchin. Manchin already came out and said, she is more than qualified, especially after these hearings. I'm more than convinced that she is absolutely a perfect fit for the Supreme Court. And if Cinema wants to come out and say no, I mean, the political backlash to that would be unreal. It would be absolutely insane because... At least from the point that I am sitting after watching a great deal of these hearings, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is more than qualified to be on the Supreme Court. The one issue that was able to be brought up was child pornography rulings. But even that, I mean, she had excellent responses to it in saying that a lot of the statutes that are being brought up, first off, are congressional statutes. The things that she follows are passed by Congress. She's simply doing her job and that um, a lot of what she was doing was perfectly legal and, and really perfectly justifiable. It was something that was very interesting to pay attention to. So, Kyle, I'll throw it over to you first. What did you make of the hearings? What were your major takeaways? What was your overall thoughts? Um, can we go back to uh, you calling 
You saying that it was an excellent response when uh, Marsha Blackburn was asking KBJ, "Please, what, what is? Could Please. you, could you define what a woman is?" And then she said, "No, no, I cannot. I'm not a biologist. You know, I'm not a veterinarian, but I know what a dog is. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> Why is it important for her at all to give an answer to that?" Um, well, you know, like, when you are figuring out whether someone should go to a female prison or a male prison, or you are figuring out sexual assault cases of a male to a female, uh, protecting female rights, women's rights, isn't that a Democrat thing? If that was an issue, you think they would have brought that up instead of going, uh, what's a woman? Well, it's all, it's all, it's all debunked if, if she can't even define what a woman is. There, there was a great article from the Babylon Bee, a satire website, that said, uh, confirmation hearings are, are have to start three hours late because Katanji Brown Jackson can't find the women's bathroom because she doesn't know what it is. Um, so I think the the fa- of course she knows what a woman is, but the fact that she was not willing to describe that a woman is someone with XX chromosomes and they have the organs to have a baby, um, and, and she wasn't just able to say that means that. She, she's cowing to, to the party line, to the most radical people in her party to win their approval. And you're not supposed to do that as, as a judge. You are supposed to interpret the law and, 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 and then apply it. But, but she's not doing that. She, she's withholding answers to, to please those most radical in her base. So why do you think it's not important for her to know the difference between a man and a woman? Because if that literally ever gets brought up before the Supreme Court, it's not going to be relevant. It will not be relevant in the slightest. The re- I mean, yeah, you are absolutely right. And the reason that she's doing it is because she doesn't want to piss anyone off in her base because it doesn't make any sense. Everyone knew the answer that she was going to give. If she gave the answer that you described, there might have been some sort of political backlash. But let's be honest, whatever answer she gave had absolutely nothing to do with whether or not she's going to get confirmed. You know, I want to jump in on this here because Please. I think this this question is kind of reflective of a bigger issue. And that's like sort of the issue of nominalism and realism. We're going to get a little bit philosophical here. All right, let's do it. But really, you know, a big difference between the left and the right right now is the left has gone very far in on nominalism, basically saying that every social construct that we have made is just a name. It's just a name that we have assigned to things. It doesn't have any real meaning. There's nothing concrete behind it. Whereas the, the side on the right is more of the realist side. There is some sort of definite thing here that we can find and we can prove. Um, and it's just one sort of thing. It, it, the, the name is reflectant of something physical. And that's really the issue here when you're saying, well, I don't know what a woman is, or I can't define what a woman is. Because um, she's basically saying, you know, that the, the word woman doesn't mean anything. That, that's essentially what the argument is on the left. The word woman can be applied to whoever, whenever they want, and it doesn't have any physical meaning no matter what. And the reason this is significant is because when you, if you apply this nominalist approach to the law, well, the law is just... I mean, we have some leeway there. I mean, it was just rules written down, you know, maybe hundreds of years ago. You know, what impact do they have now? You know, the, the Constitution, it's just a bunch of words. You know, it doesn't have any concrete meaning. And so when you're appointing a Supreme Court justice who is apparently going all in on this nominalist approach, well, I'm not a biologist. I can't say what a woman is because I don't have the credentials or I don't have, you know, this background to say. You know, that's a scary thing. And that's a, that's a scary idea that we've been pushing for a long time in that there is no physical, concrete definition that we assign to names. And there definitely is a concrete, physical definition that we assign to every single name, every single word. And this sudden approach to just, well, it doesn't matter, I think is very harmful in many aspects. Well, hey, fortunately we don't have to speculate on what her approach is, because she's not a biologist, but she is a legal expert, so when asked what her thoughts were on the Constitution and whether or not it is a living, breathing document, her response, and this is a quote from her, I believe the Constitution is fixed in its meaning. I believe that it is appropriate to look at the original intent, original public meaning of the words when one is trying to assess, because again, that's a limitation on my authority to import my own policy. So we can speculate all day long as to whether or not her response to what is a woman has anything to do with what her rulings are going to be on the Supreme Court. But at the end of the day, when she was asked about things that are well within her field, she gave responses that you would want to hear mm-hmm. and that the Constitution is fixed in its meaning and that is what she interprets because she doesn't go out and interpret what a woman is. She goes out and interprets what the law is and she has said what the law is is what the law is and that is what she bases her rulings on. 
not speculation. Yeah, I think that's an excellent response yeah, yeah. on her end. And I'm not saying that necessarily she is the one who's going to interpret the Constitution loosely. I'm just saying with this sort of, you know, uh, push in the nominalist direction, we might see this in years to come. I'm not saying necessarily uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson is the one who's going to do that. I'm just saying that this is a, a scary sort of um, frame of mind that we are continuing with into the future. Um, I still think that being able to define gender is really important for your job. And the fact that a kindergarten could define gender better than a potential Supreme Court nominee, I think, speaks a lot. Um, I mean, just think about gender discrimination cases, like at the workplace. If someone says, they were discriminated against me because I'm a woman, and this goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and then KB, KBJ says, well, well, sheesh, I don't really know what a woman is, so I don't know, like, why you would be discriminated against, because, because that's not my field, I'm not a biologist. Um, so I feel like knowing what a woman is, which has been basic history for all of human history, of a man knows what a woman is, and a woman knows what a man is, and what makes them different, um, it, it, of course it has Im Im implica implications for the law and how it's applied. And the fact that, like, I think, I think her, her uh, bumper sticker answer about how, how the Constitution should be interpreted is great, but the fact that she was not willing to say kind of no to her base and say this is what a woman is i know a lot of people don't agree with me that this is what a woman is but this is what it is and sometimes it is important for legal rulings i think that does say a lot about her character but we're going out we're looking at the wrong issue here because if we're sitting there saying she couldn't go against party lines on something that has absolutely nothing to do with the supreme court she went against the party line in saying that the constitution is not a living breathing document that is the traditional liberal judge approach is to say it's a living breathing document that needs to be interpreted interpreted so by her coming out and saying that it's not, that's against the party line in the biggest, most important way here. Obviously, the thing that's going to grab headlines is the thing that's contentious in our modern society. But the thing that needs to have the most attention paid to it is what's going to have the biggest implications for the Supreme Court. And the biggest implications for the Supreme Court right now is her saying that she is not interpreting the, uh, that the, that she's not interpreting the, the Constitution as a living, breathing document. And that's something that she continues to double down on. She continued to say, I take things on a case-by-case -case basis. Obviously, every judge does. But she's not saying that she's going to have this sweeping, uh, exceptionally liberal policy going forward. And that seems to be consistent with what Biden wanted as someone who is going to be reminiscent of the Biden presidency, in which it's not, as much as we want to say it is, it's not this uber-liberal um, presidency. And that is something that seems to be reflecting of Ketanji Brown-Jackson, is she's not this uber-liberal judge, knowing full well that if she was, she's not getting the support of senators like Joe Manchin. So I think that is the biggest issue that we need to be looking at, is not so much her interpretation of what is a woman, but her interpretation of what is the Constitution. I think really, you know, this this whole discussion on, you know, what is a woman doesn't really apply to Katanji Brown Jackson. Like you're saying, I don't think it has too much impact on the job that she is going to do. You know, she seems qualified. Uh, she has, you know, a whole bucket list of, you know, experience and odds are she's going to get uh, approved to the Supreme Court. So really, this question doesn't have any bearing on whether or not she's going to get appointed. What it really shows, it's it was just a nationally televised example of what I was just saying, this nominalist versus realist. And that's really where people are all, all up in arms about it. Not necessarily so much in that it's going to affect her as a judge, but just that it is uh, displaying kind of the ideas of the left right now and that sort of party line there. And that is where the real issue is. You know, where is this going to be applied? Not necessarily in the Supreme Court, but in our day-to-day -day lives in the general broader uh, sphere of influence. On a similar note, Kyle, do you have anything on that before... And bring up something else. You can move on. Okay, so something else that was brought up, which I think is, is very interesting, especially, Adam, going off the point that you were making, is whether or not there should be cameras in the Supreme Court, because that was something that was brought up by the senator from Nebraska, in which should cameras be brought up before the Supreme Court, because obviously it's something that's not happening now. More and more, we're getting transparency, and you can tune in via phone call and hear the audio recordings of what happens in the Supreme Court but there's no cameras, and the argument against it that this senator from Nebraska was using is that look at what's going on in Congress. Look at literally what's going on right now in this hearing. There are so many people that are just using this as an excuse to motivate their base. I mean, Ted Cruz isn't going to say what Ted Cruz is saying. Lindsey Graham isn't going to say what Lindsey Graham is saying if there aren't cameras in that room, right? I mean, 
there's no point in making a huge big deal. I think Lindsey Graham at one point just got up and left, got out of the room. That's not something you do if there's not cameras in the Senate at that time. So I would be curious what your guys' thoughts are on that. Is what we're seeing partially because there are cameras in Congress, do you think there should be cameras in the Supreme Court, or do you think this is something that's not really significant? I mean, even before cameras, uh, I'm pretty sure like journalists and other people of note were able to come to these events and, and take notes, and so I think it's always been um, a bit of a political process of of whenever there's a nominee, you have to cater, cater to your base and, and show that you're, you're doing the right thing for the conservative party, you're doing the right thing for the progressive party. And so I don't, I don't think removing cameras would, would do anything because um, the only other option would be to remove all public access to it. So then people wouldn't be wanting to, to cater to their base and they wouldn't be wanting to just win, win public approval points. But then that kind of removes the accountability aspect to dangerous. it. Yeah. So, yeah, like before, before you had news reporters that would write, write comments down, write quotes down. Oh, he got up and then the whole room gasped. Um, and now we just have it in, in video form, which, of course, is more engaging. Um, but, yeah, I, I'd say that um, it's always been part of the process, and I think it's just something you have to deal with when it comes to uh, making these people accountable and then just informing the public of what's going on. Sure. I'm, I'm real big on transparency just in every single branch of government. You know, I'd be in favor of a running audit of every single dime that the government spends sent to everybody every single day. right? And I, I see really no reason why we don't allow cameras in the Supreme Court Right? To me, it really just kind of seems like, well, this is just what we used to do, and this is how it's just been. Uh, I don't really see the argument uh, you know, opposed to it, um, so I don't, I, I mean, just why not? I mean, we already have cameras, like you said, in Congress and that sort of thing. So, I mean, just more transparency to get people more engaged in what they're talking about, um, I think is a, is a big deal, kind of to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, we had that abortion debate, and people showed up just because it was held. You know, people might tune into more Supreme Court hearings just because they are televised, because they are recorded, and I think that is a good thing. Uh, to keep up to date with what the arguments are, you know, even before the, the judgment is issued, you know, several months later, I think, you know, why not? Why don't we put cameras in the Supreme Court? But do you think, had there been, had there not been cameras during at least this hearing, do you still think you see, and I'm, I'm going to keep going back to the well of Lindsey Graham just because that was the one that stuck out to me because that was where I was seeing all the video clips of, you have someone who is pressing a nominee on various issues, some are related to the Supreme Court nominees' qualifications, but many of which that aren't. He's going way over his time that is allotted, ignoring the rules of the committee. He's badgering the nominee, wouldn't let her answer the questions. I mean, there were senators, one senator um, from Vermont, I believe it was, who had been on this committee for 48 years that he had never seen anything like it. I, do you think that's still something that happens if you don't have cameras in the room? I mean, I think it is. I think we'd, we'd see almost worse aspects of that in a way because like we said we're taking away more accountability from these people i get like more cameras can increase you know the performance i guess aspect of it the, the sensationalization but at the same time if we take away the cameras do we even care if somebody goes over their allotted time would we even know that somebody went over their allotted time right because the only reason that you know he went over their allotted time is because you saw the videos right if we didn't have those videos there would you go through the written transcripts of the entire meeting go he went over his allotted time he went over his allotted time this is not good you know i think we might see more issues in rule breaking but i mean it's kind of just pure conjecture at this point, you know. Uh, I think it's very hard to say, you know, what the impacts would be with or without. Yeah, it's like, what, what's, what's human nature? Will people do their jobs better or do their jobs worse when no <laughs> one's watching? <laughs> will, they, will they act more professional and, and not get these political points? Or will they act worse because they know no one's watching them? And, and then they, can, they still have those stories that they can tell their base. They're like, you guys didn't see it, but I did X, Y, and Z, and I was so tough on the nominee, you should have been there. Um, so, yeah, at that point, it's just kind of like, I, I don't know, what, what if? But. I think the, the real answer is just running like sports commentators, like WWE. Yeah, know, the, the Lindsey Graham, watch out, watch out, RKO. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jordan, back to you. Yeah, uh, something else that was interesting to me is was Josh Hawley's performance, because Josh Hawley has obviously been someone who is polarizing in, in recent memory, to say the least. He was more conservative, not necessarily in the political sense, but in the way that he acted, his lines of questioning were 
predominantly based on child pornography uh, charges that Ketanji Brown-Jackson had given, mainly on their leniency, and it was something that the left was kind of getting angry about because he kept going to the same thing over and over, which is ironic because I keep doing the same thing here. But a lot of people kind of viewed it as a good thing, kind of swinging the balance of where a lot of people were against him, kind of bringing it back. So... I asked to you guys, because his performance, if you watch the video of it, which I think really helped him, he is a very stoic speaker. He is a very good speaker at that. And the lines of questioning that he gave were very appealing to people that maybe he turned away after January 6th. So do you think this is something that will be able to help him going forward? Because obviously he went to Yale Law School. Guy knows what he's talking about, at least to some extent. You might not like what he has to say all the time, but you have to at least grant him that. He knows what he's doing as a politician. I'd be curious to think if you guys think this helps him in the long run or if January 6th did too much damage to um, hurt his future campaigns. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's an interesting question. I didn't watch that specific part of the, of the hearing, so I can't say for 100% certainty. Um, but it's interesting that you brought up, you know, his sort of performance as a speaker. Uh, kind of, I, I think we should have brought this up earlier, talking about cameras, but like... Way back when, when, when presidential debates were first televised, I forget who the debate was between. Kennedy and Nixon. Kennedy and Nixon. Yep. The people who listened on the radio thought Nixon had one. The people who watched on TV thought Kennedy had one because Nixon was sweating the whole time and he looked nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but Nixon might have had better responses to the ear, whereas Kennedy looked better on camera. Uh, so it's an interesting question of, you know, what aspects, you know, is it what he was saying that might help him in the future, or is it what he was performing as that might help him in the future? Was it his, you know, demeanor, or was it his actual words? I think that's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure um, what sort of helped him here. I think Holly may have been, may, and again, I didn't see the clip that Jordan you're talking about, um, but um, knowing how Holly has performed, I imagine he might have been kind of trotting that fine line of, how do I kind of win political points but also be a professional while I do it? And I think that was what he was doing because he had these conservative talking points of, yeah, like, you need to be tough on crime. Uh, child pornography is bad. Why weren't you tough on that? And, and going down these lines. But he, he didn't really, really get, like, emotional about it. He didn't make a big hubble. He's like, okay, these are legitimate questions. And I think they were legitimate questions. Like, even if you disagree with her responses, they're like, okay, this is, this is kind of an anomaly. This is different. This sets you apart from a lot of other judges. Please explain this. And so I think, I think it showed it showed his lawyer side that that um, when when you have that kind of legal mind, you know the right questions to ask, and uh, him not kind of turning it into uh, an emotional. This is about me, but here are the questions. Please answer them and acting in a very professional manner. I, I think that did help him, and I think he he also did win political points. So I think he he trotted that fine line. Yeah, and I mean, if I'm sitting there and viewing this from a Republican point of view, if I'm sitting there thinking. Is this someone that I can vote for in the future? If I watch Josh Hawley and I listen to what he's saying, I am more likely to vote for him after this hearing than I was before. I mean, this was, for any Republican candidate, this was a slam dunk. Because you know going into it, realistically, what you're going to say is going to have very little impact. Everyone's got the same information available to them. Your vote was likely already cast, regardless of how Katanji Brown-Jackson performed. She just happened to perform very well. I think most people would agree with that. But Josh Hawley also performed very well, and that helped him going forward because at the end of the day, what he did is more so for him than it was for disconfirming or, or not, not conforming, confirming Kentonji Brown-Jackson. So I think it helped him a lot going forward, whereas other political candidates, people like Ted Cruz, probably didn't help their case because they just didn't come off as likable as Josh Hawley did. So obviously the Missouri person here is looking pretty good going forward. Um, do we have anything else on the subject, or do we want to get into our last story? Okay, I, I, I do a quick thing. I think there was a story, and I didn't check into the veracity of it, but like Ted Cruz was looking to see if his name was trending on Twitter. Like He looked up his name, Ted Cruz, like, that's, that's not a good look. No, <laughs> like, yeah. It's uh, really on brand for Ted Cruz, though. <laughs> um, and... So, yeah, I think I think Holly did improve his image. Though I think it is mutually beneficial. Like, it helps him to ask these questions, but it also does help us to be like, that's weird. Please explain that. Yeah. One final thing I want to say. Washington Post had an incredible headline. And the, the headline in the article was claiming that Katanji Brown-Jackson was treated worse by Republicans than Kavanaugh was by Democrats. What? Are you serious? 
by asking questions about her record and being, this is weird, please please respond to this. Um, maybe sternly asking is worse than than accusing uh, a guy of, of sexual assault and, and rape? Like, gang rape? Are you serious? Like, bias in the media, there it is. What do you think about that, Jordan? I did see that, I, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that is something that we need to touch on. I, I thought something very similar because I was seeing on Twitter, the very liberal side of Twitter was adamant. They were like, see, these are the things that a black woman has to go through every single day. Is exactly the behavior that is, is being pushed on Katanji Brown-Jackson during this hearing, and she's an absolute hero. Not to say that she's not a hero, but the behavior that was being put towards her during this hearing, I didn't think was that bad. You look at the Kavanaugh hearings... And a lot of that, a lot of that was very uh, ad hominem-esque. It was attacking Kavanaugh himself. Not it was vicious. I, I mean, it was, it was intense. There were times I was looking at that thinking, okay, I get the accusations are what they are. They are rape. They are sexual assault. But they're not confirmed. They're not necessarily believable. And there are people gunning for this guy's throat. I mean, there were people just pissed at this guy. Whereas with Tanja Brown-Jackson, at least, there were people being stern. But that level of sternness is there in every hearing. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that is something. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, let's all agree that you need to be kind of stern. You are appointing someone to the Supreme Court. That's a big deal. They need to be able to withstand that kind of pressure. Obviously, is that kind of pressure going to uh, allow you to have great friendships with the people who are questioning you <laughs> later on? Probably not. If I'm Katanji Brown-Jackson, uh, Lindsey Graham's probably not getting a Christmas card this year. But <laughs> you have to have that kind of presence when you're questioning someone. That's just part of the deal. So, no, I, I absolutely disagree with someone saying that Kavanaugh uh, had it better than Katanji Brown-Jackson, especially if it's something on the grounds of race. I just I cannot believe it for a second because it seemed like you had all those moments with Cory Booker where he was starting to break down into tears and Katanji Brown-Jackson started to shed a tear. You had those heartfelt moments that you don't have in any other hearing. So I just, it's a very important hearing. It's a very important appointment. But, man, to try to say that she had it worse than Kavanaugh is, that's a tough, tough thing to say. Adam, I'm curious what your thoughts are, though I get the sneaking suspicion. I know where they might be going. (laughs) Well, I wanted to bring up, you know, since they're talking about race and this is her treatment was because of race, going back to Clarence Thomas, who faced much the same treatment as Kavanaugh did. He faced the same criticisms, uh, alleged sexual assault, I believe, was what it was. And I think it's important to note that it was Joe Biden who was the one mostly railing against him in those Supreme Court confirmation hearings, uh, claiming that he did all of these terrible things in the past. So now if sort of the left is saying, well, she's only receiving these, this treatment because she's black, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, why doesn't that also apply to exactly what Joe Biden was doing, to a worse extent, to Clarence Thomas when, when he was being confirmed? And so I think that's, that's, a, that's a good little note to make, is, is you know what exactly is going on here? I really don't think that this is the worst of all time confirmation hearing that we've ever seen. That they're being stern, but I think they're being fair for the most part. And I it's, agree. it's dangerous because a lot of people who I guarantee you didn't watch the hearings probably didn't even see like 30 seconds of it are sitting there and, and now they have this idea that these were egregious hearings. These were terrible. They were brutal to her and she is, uh, she is just a trooper for getting through them. While she did face tough lines of questioning, tough in the sense that they had nothing to do with the fact that she is a Supreme Court nominee, I, like that's that's the nature of the beast. That's that it, it is what it is. You can't go into it and, and come out of that playing the victim card, which is great for Katanji Brown Jackson because she's not. I, I have not heard a word from her saying any of this has anything to do with race. She has been fantastic. I think she has been absolutely lights out in the way that she has dealt with it. It has more so been people... less so the media to me at least less so the media than people on the media like people using twitter instagram social media people on social media have been clamoring trying to say that this is something that is rooted deeply in race and it just it didn't give that impression to someone who watched a lot of this i i watched it and i was thinking i just can't say that this is something that is based deeply in race, and I, I don't think we're going to have time to get into our last topic, but that was something that we probably would have touched on, was these issues of the media just kind of taking it and spinning things, 
that didn't really need to be spun. That that face value you watch and you go, yeah, that's that's not that's not really that bad. That's not that's not that bad, guys. We've got to calm down a little bit. So, Kyle, I'm curious your further takes on this. I know you've got them. I, mean, I just want to say we still have three minutes. So if you want to do a very very quick, <laughs> we I, we could. All right, topic. I will. All right, so. Uh, Harry's Razors, they are a company that sells razors, surprise, surprise. And the Daily Wire, they are a, a very popular, very uh, mainstream conservative outlet. And for a while, they were using Harry's Razors as an advertiser. And then one of their hosts said uh, the basic biological fact that has been true for thousands of years, that men are men and women are women. And then a Twitter follower um, with two followers mentioned to Harry's, uh, how can you advertise with scum like this? And then Harry's responded to this person with two Twitter followers and said, "Oh, you're right. There is values misalignment. What 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 that what that person said is inexcusable. That there are two genders." And so they pulled thousands of dollars of advertising from the Daily Wire. And so and then like the day after, the CEO of the Daily Wire said, uh, "Okay, we'll make our own razor company." And I read that and I laughed. And then earlier this week. Jeremy's Razors was was announced, and Jeremy's Razors is a a conservative kind of counter razor company to to when they say build your own build your own company you don't like it build your own they did, and so now there's a competitor for for Harry's Razors, and they've already over tripled the Twitter followers of Harry's. They sold like thirty thousand sets in their first in their first seventy two hours. Um, and I think it's really important because this shows that the the kind of cancel culture, the the polarization culture, it's not just relegated to the culture. It is spilling over into the economy, and I kind of think it should. But uh, Jordan, what do you think? Is yeah. this is this a good thing that conservatives are saying? Okay, fine, we'll we'll make a store for conservatives. What no, do you think? I think it's I think it's a good thing because obviously the line is if you don't like it, go somewhere else. If you don't like it, you can start your own company. And for someone to start their own company, it's like all right, put up or shut up. If you're gonna say there's a value misalignment, I think his exact words were, yeah, if there's a value misalignment, you're right. There is a value misalignment. It's on our behalf too. If yeah, I thought you were someone who was sponsoring us because you knew what we stood for, and obviously you didn't. And I mean. It does seem kind of funny in the first place that you could be advertising on the Daily Wire and then, like, this comes up of all things that the Daily Wire has published. You're like, that's the thing that I'm going to, to die on is is someone saying men are men, women are women. But, I, no, I think it's a good thing. I think it's good to have that diversification within the economy. It, it really it supports that idea that if you don't like it, you can do it yourself. And sure enough, do it yourself. I mean, obviously, this guy was... Uh, the founder of today of the wire he's got some money lying around he's got a little bit of capital yeah but uh no i I think it's a good thing adam what are your thoughts you know i kind of want to tie this back into the earlier discussions i mean you know when we're looking at companies and sort of the influence of culture on them and where like the the the, uh sort of the politics of their consumers lie you know where does that company draw the line at who they give their products to where's like the free market aspect here i think we've kind of seen that with russia I mean, it's a very different aspect of just your everyday consumer and, like, a corporation, I mean, as opposed to a country declaring war. But it's like, we've seen just about every Western commodity pull out of Russia, stop offering anything to Russian citizens. And so it's like, well, where is that line drawn? Is it, you know, well, of course, nation invading other nation, that's a bad thing. We can pull out out, out, uh, our products there. When it comes to things, you know, domestically, you know, already there's so much information about us and what we believe out there on the Internet. Where is the line drawn with... You know, we don't want to market our products to these people. We don't even want to sell our products to these people that we don't agree with. So I think it is an interesting, you know, where we're getting the polarization. That diversification is good. Polarization, maybe not so much. Yeah, my, my last word on this is that I, I do think it's good because we're seeing polarization in the culture, which isn't good, but when there are kind of no real consequences for one side completely de- dehumanizing the other or vice versa, that that is a problem, and we are entering that. Um, but that same bifurcation has not occurred in the economy. And you still have these massive corporations that are kind of forcing their values upon you or saying your values are are terrible. Like, they're not even selling their product anymore. They're selling their product with a logo attached saying your values suck. And, and that's just not where we should be. So how do we respond? We equally bifurcate the economy until those companies start hurting and they think, okay, we can't do that. We made a mistake. 
let's come together again and just give you a good product instead of hating on your values. So we kind of need to have this mutually assured destruction of, I won't hate on your values, you don't hate on mine, let's just make a good product to make everybody happy. And I think we need to get back to that spot. But before we do that, we have to show these companies that we can take their money and we can take their business um, because of this so-called value misalignment. And I do think that's important. I don't even necessarily think it's a bad thing to be buying things just from a company that your values align with. I think oh, yeah. if, if you're sitting there thinking like, okay, these guys align with my point of view, I'm going to buy from them. They don't, I'm not going to buy from them. I think that's fine. Obviously, the ideal point in an economy is just like, I don't have to worry about the company that I'm buying from because yeah. they don't have values. They're a company. I'm, I'm buying something from Disney. I don't they value profits and making yeah. a good product. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give them their profits. That's a good thing. But yeah, I think where values align right now, that's not part of the game. You're not going to have something that's completely unbiased. So I think right now what Jeremy's Razors are doing is a good thing. We need more of that. I think it's smart going forward. We'll see if more companies start to do it. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Do we have parting thoughts on this, or are we good? I think I'm good. good. I'm good. All right. I have been Jordan Carlson, representing the College Democrats. I have been Kyle Farrell, and I've been representing the College Republicans. And I've been Adam Bishop, also representing the College Republicans. All right. Keep it locked to the left here on 88.7 KTRM Kirksville.